Greg Naughton, welcome to So the Story Goes. Hey, Brian Shark Man. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, this, is like your, this is like your 700th show since you started last seventh, year? My 700th show. Yeah. I don't know exactly how you pronounce that, but I... <laughs> <laughs> this is episode one of oh. season five. Wow. So this is over 50 episodes now. Nice. Yeah, Very it's impressive. been fun. Uh, not long ago, I had uh, Rich Price, our colleague and friend and bandmate uh, on the podcast. Never heard of him? I know. The name certainly rings a bell. I, gotta, I should have listened before we talk because he probably talked some shit about me, right? You guys did. Oh, God. It was just smack talking the whole time. You know, <laughs> Greg this, Greg that, you know. Oh, man. I know. He's kind of a motherfucker. I knew it. Mm -hmm. I knew it. Um, so I don't know how much you know about this podcast, but the premise is this. Um, I want to talk about early musical memories, like um, artists, early influences, albums, what your folks were playing, things that were inspiring to you. And then I want to talk about uh, how you came to kind of become a songwriter, finding your instrument. Um, let's talk about The Sweet Remains. Let's talk about your solo material. Let's talk about um, your work in musical theater. Let's talk about all the things. But okay, how much time do you have? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was born at a very young age. <laughs> well, hit me with... Um, hit me with you know, music that the early musical memories, whether it was the music um, that your folks were playing at home or maybe uh, artists that you remember um, just hit well, me kind of like coming online and recognizing music. And, and what was that? Like, who are those right. artists? Well, you know, the answers to this, but presumably since your mom wants to hear, I will, I will tell, <laughs> please tell mom that she's dying. She probably, she probably knows at this point too. Um, <clears throat> hi, Corinne. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> uh, my parents, as you know, my dad is an actor and, uh, he James was, Lord. yep. And when I was just a, a wee child, it was 1970s, Los Angeles, late seventies, Oh. LA. So all that stuff was happening uh, right then or had happened. Like all of what you and I and, and would probably still consider some of the greatest music ever made yeah. in our, in our sphere and genre. Uh, so that was all over the place on my dad had a, had a seventies Dodge with like a uh, shag rug, interior paisley curtains, I mean, he was, he was living the LA dream Come and beanbags. Like we didn't have chairs. There were no, there were no uh, <laughs> buckles, safety belts. Oh no. There were just these beanbags until one day when my sister, uh, he had to stop real fast. And like, she came from the back thing. There was like a little loft up there and came cartwheeling through and hit the front, uh, you know, hit the oh, console yeah. at the very front. And at that point, my mom was like, we need seatbelts. So we had... <laughs> We had beanbag chairs with seatbelts. <laughs> no shit. In the car. Yeah. They just, somebody came in with big bolts and bolted these seatbelts into the floor of the shag rug. Oh and we'd gosh. have to sit in this 
in our, I'm sure it like wouldn't have helped <laughs> in any way. So what but, was he doing? He was, was he shooting Planet of the Apes at that time? Yeah, we moved out there um, when I was uh, five and he was just uh, doing the Planet of the Apes. It was the late seventies. It was the TV show. Yeah. The movies, a couple of movies, you know, Charlton Heston and whatever had been out before that. And he ended up playing uh, one of those roles, the astronaut wow. roles in the TV show, um, <clears throat> which is a whole other story. But that was a super fun, interesting time to be a kid and, and running around in the back lot with all those apes and. Oh, my God. And rattlesnakes and things. and weird. But I digress. So, um, <clears throat> but I remember he had, you know, it was all. Come on, man. With the with the fucking emails, really, right now? Come on. We already discussed it. I had to turn that off, right? Um, hang on a second. Take it down. You mean you edit that shit? Oh, no, I'm going to... I haven't heard you edit anything. I'm going to add you some got, reverb, some <laughs> echo. It's going to sound like, like a goddamn... That shit. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> but he had um, eight tracks like eight tracks of one of the ones that was most impactful that I remember probably because the other ones all got, you know, eaten up and uh, the sun degraded them and they got destroyed. But was the one that lasted the longest was CSN. Wow. Um, so some of my earliest memories are Marrakesh Express, you know, driving down the road and, wow. and, and, uh, and all those great songs, Sweet Judy, Blue Eyes. Oh my God. And I mean, and I don't know. It wasn't. What year, what year was that stuff written? So it's not that long afterwards. It's it's almost. No, exactly. I was just gonna say, like you're kind of like still living in the heyday of that Laurel King and sound. I think. Yeah, well, yeah, totally. There at the end of the seventies was still it. It was still must have been just. I had no idea how spoiled that was. I was listening to that like Al Green. He had an Al Green thing that we play in there and jam out to Stevie Wonder. That's how I got into Stevie Wonder first was. There was an eight-track Stevie Wonder, uh, who, as you know, is is remains That's my my favorite artist of all time. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, and and I and he had great like old stereo systems with the big yeah. amplifiers that glowed and all that sort of thing, and big old like Klipsch speakers or oh, whatever yeah. the hell they were that would sit on the shag rug in the living room. Oh my! And God. we'd play stuff, and I just listened to it. I remember Steve Miller Band was also one of the early ones. In oh. fact, this might be, this may be just when this came out. But time keeps on slipping into the future. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the family stories is that I would sit there and listen to that over and over again with my ear to the speaker. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> the five years old, and, and at one point, my mom's like, "You gotta get away from the speaker." And she comes over. I'm actually like crying. <laughs> she said, what What's wrong? I said, "Time really is slipping into the future." <laughs> <laughs> so i was demented from an early age <laughs> you barely recovered <laughs> but it's really the perfect recipe for uh becoming an artist and a musician songwriter so how so how long were you out there um we were there for three years and the show got canceled. I, oddly enough, it, it, the show did fairly well. I'm not sure why that didn't last longer, but um, 
as soon as it was over, I think he was desperate to get back east. All of our families from the Connecticut area and the Northeast in general. Um, and uh, so we moved back and my dad's now uh, one of the very rare specimen of, of a actor artist who has lived in the burbs for 40, 40 something years. Yeah. He's been you mean the burbs of New York for or... two years. Well, he's, yeah, he's out, he's in he's, he's in Connecticut, mm-hmm. same house, same everything. Yeah. And he's had, a, you know, obviously a very successful career, traveled all over the place and studied, but just that was home base. And once he finally, cause we lived in nine different houses, apartments, things in the first five years of my life. And then he was like, okay, we need to settle down and he hasn't moved since and, and last i know he, he I, i'm gonna have to drag him out of there feet first <laughs> he doesn't want to leave ever <laughs> how did um not to take this off of you but how did your dad go from okay <laughs> okay i just turned that off you heard me do it I, you have to physically do it though you can't just yell to siri <laughs> to do shit for you <laughs> That I also did flip the switch, so to speak. Okay, take your time. Should be good. We good. Okay. And if you don't, if you don't edit that shit out, <laughs> I'm no longer your friend. It's going to be comedic gold. Trust me, I will do. We'll it. make music together, but I will never talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut records. We'll go on the road, but I'm not going to look you in the eye. Exactly. Um, how did your father go from? you know, Planet of the Apes to, to Broadway, basically. Was, well, was that always a thing for him, singing? and He's sort of, you know, you know him. He's a multi-talented guy. He can Love sing, him. he can dance, he can act. Um, Play ping pong like a motherfucker? Ping pong, I don't know about dancing, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I put that in there, but I don't think he would call himself a dancer. But he, uh, you know, he was a Yale, went to Yale School of Drama, um, and uh, he was well trained. Started out doing movies and TV, and no, he started out. I mean, doing theater, but then went to movies and TV. And then it was actually many years later. I don't think he wanted to do eight shows a week a lot of the time that I was growing up as a kid. And uh, you know, my wife, who is uh, a, a Broadway person, Phenom. can tell you it's tough on the family situation. Yeah. And she's tried to avoid it now for a few years that our kids are, are starting to get to an age where, you know, they, they'll notice. So he didn't for a lot of years. And then it was kind of when I went to college that he started auditioning for things like that again and, and ended up doing a, a musical called City of Angels, which was written by Cy Coleman. And uh, the music was a real, it was a great, great musical. And he won the Tony Award for that. And it's sort of, wow set him off in, in a different direction. And he became a big musical theater guy for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back to you. So after, so after LA, you said you were there for five years. So now you're 10 ish. Oh, I was there for three years, oh, three years. Uh, at, at eight. I moved back. Um, and you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I did anything. That's not true. I mean, I was always writing little songs. Yeah. Even before I could ever play an instrument, I was yep. getting a couple of um, cassette tapes. And I can't remember when I first started doing it, but I started doing the ping ponging thing between two cassette tapes. Oh, where I sang harmonies over them pretty, pretty early. So um, you didn't even have the four track 
Tascam. It was no, before. It was, it was two. This was two boom boxes, basically. Before I knew that it existed. Right. This is like you know. This is ten, eleven, twelve years okay. old. So nineteen thirty-four, <laughs> thirty-five. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, is my yeah. my sis, my sister was recently regaling uh, us with some of those songs that she remembers because there were. Just nonsense words. I would tend to sing these things, and they, it would it would go from like totally pulling some uh, some hit song, like I'd steal something, and then suddenly I'd be singing gibberish. And there was one song, I think one song that she remembers and likes to make fun of me for all the time, where the where the chorus was Slaveo which is I think a steal of. Uh, this is still some big famous song, but also just total gibberish. Uh, it sounds vaguely sexual. Slave <laughs> or masculin? Yeah, just I mean, like it sounds vaguely French. Yeah, it sounds vaguely vague. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, okay, so you're now you're back on the East Coast. At what point, like, do you find? Your, do we know do we know each other too well to actually do this this podcast? Well, no, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to peel back the layers of knowledge to just yes. go back to a blank slate. Yes. And yes, we've probably talked about this, but you know, at what point do you find your voice? At what point do you find an instrument? And at what point do those two things merge and you start to write songs? Well, I guess it was fairly early around then. I liked to sing. So I would sing all the time. And I guess people must have not hated it because I got, you know, a, a sense of encouragement about it. And I would mm, sit up there and write these songs all the time. And then I guess there were occasional, you know, the class play, like in fifth grade, everybody in the class has to be in the play, whether they want to or not. Right. And then I sort of discovered what I was interested in and having, you know, a family in the arts, it wasn't a huge stretch. So I'm like, Greg, you'll play the lead. Okay. And sing these songs. And people seem to like that. So I was like, Oh, this is, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and cut to maybe seventh. No, no. Now we're talking about eighth, ninth grade. Um, and there's a kid pulls up to me at the urinal in the bathroom. <laughs> I'm there and he pulls up next to me and he's got like a Metallica shirt on and just giant hair. And I don't recognize him, but he's a kid I had in class back in elementary school. He said, Greg, Greg, remember me? I'm Dave Coogan. I was like, oh, yeah. Hey, Dave. Yeah, I didn't recognize you. Uh, he's like, I remember you used to sing. Uh, we need a singer for our band. Do you want to do it? And I said, oh, I didn't even think to ask what kind of music it was or anything. Right. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how I really started actually doing bands and 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 making music. And he and his brother um, were musicians. Dave Coogan was a was a really great uh, drummer at that time. His brother uh, is still, you know, Chris Coogan, who is a um, really well known. A pianist in in this area and he's now a jazz cat but at that time we started out doing heavy metal <laughs> oh, right. 
And I had no idea. So I show up to this and the only reason they were really doing heavy metal is because the only two guitarists they could find a bass guitar player were also brothers from uh, Milford, Connecticut, who just, they were heavy metal heads. Yeah. So to make a band happen, we had to play to, you know, what they knew and what they wanted to play. I Can but, I just say though that, you know, and I want to talk about this, but you have that really, you have a higher register voice for that. Mm -hmm. It's almost a natural, I mean, whatever it doesn't, maybe it doesn't match up with well stevie wonder has a high has a high tenor you know but you have the voice to at least pull it off whether you love it or not it's you have yeah, the I mean, vocal range you know rock rock you like a hurricane like i, I enjoyed singing that stuff it's it's not unfun of course you get to like led zeppelin and stuff like that that was really fun to sing but it was so loud. We would be in, in the Coogan's basement that I took to getting, I got the longest mic cable I could get. And I would stand outside with the double doors closed <laughs> and sing from out there. I still convinced that the hearing damage I have is from those couple of years of doing that. Yeah. But that evolved into eventually, um, we rid ourselves of the, uh, heavy metal brothers, and the three of us started an, uh, the third band, like the first band was called Esper. And the second mm. band was Paradox. And then finally, wow. the <laughs> we started to go mainstream and we're like, well, how about One Way? Uh, which is, by the way, a good way to, to go. Go with the name that you can just go steal the sign uh, off the street. And right. You right. have, you know what I mean? Save <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, and so we were one way and then we started writing songs. Um, Chris was a very, very uh, good young musician and he started writing this stuff. And at this point, I still have not picked up a guitar or any instrument. Uh, right. That was my next question. I was just singing and uh, it's one of the great regrets of my life, actually, that I didn't get into it right away. Uh, it wasn't until I was a freshman in college, I think, that I woke up in, in a cold sweat one morning because now I didn't have those guys. I didn't have my band. I was just a, a guy who who kind of could sing and like to write lyrics and melodies and no one to do it with. And so I woke up one morning going, oh, shit, why the hell do I not play an instrument? So I started, I picked up the guitar and just started uh, playing and missing most of my classes there for a couple of years. <laughs> so the story goes is sponsored by my dear friends the engstrom team talking about becky carrie and kate this is the mother-daughter real estate team with coldwell banker realty they've been uh, selling in the phoenix metro area for 25 years and they know the market come on what have you done for 25 years? Uh, maybe you're a first-time home buyer. Uh, maybe you're looking to upgrade the house to support your family. Um, maybe you have questions uh, if this is the right time to sell. The market is crazy. Everybody knows that. But Becky, Kate, and Carrie can really guide you. Being a buyer can be very competitive, and you'll want a team looking out for you. Let's be honest. You don't know what you're doing. Give my dear friends a call, 480-250-1936. They will set you straight the same way that they set me straight. So you're you're at Middlebury and and what was the what was the goal of that experience? I mean 
It was to meet Rich Price. Well, I get it. He wasn't going to be there for a few years, but yeah. <laughs> um, like, were you going? I, I know that you were involved in the theater at Middlebury. So, was that? I like, was, but the reason I went to Middlebury and what I really always wanted to do, and what I still gives me the greatest sense of satisfaction, is writing mm-hmm. in any form. And I, I went there sort of as a creative writer and. Uh, I did major in English. They didn't have a writing program specifically, but they had a whole lot of writing classes and, you know, it's part of the English program. So that was my major. Uh, I did so much theater that they ended up, you know, saying, please finish your theater major as well, which I did. Right. Um, And that was a tremendous experience. And that sort of set me off towards doing theater as well. But, uh, but the writing aspect of it is, is kind of why I ended up going to Middlebury instead of like a, a theater school or something like that. And it's just kind of crazy to to imagine that you didn't pick up the guitar until college. You pick up the guitar to be able to accompany yourself because you are, are a songwriter. So what did that process look like for you? How did it evolve and what happens after college? <laughs> So I guess another key step was there was in that same freshman year and I, I don't play an instrument and I'm, I sing and I'm, I'm looking for that outlet. And there's, you know, the singing groups, Middlebury at that point, there's one singing group. I think now there's dozens, but there is the good old fashioned, you know, barbershop thing where Hell yeah. guys sing, uh, uh, the, the Middlebury equivalent of uh, the Whiff and Poofs or whoever those those groups are that from right. the, back in the 1920s and on. <laughs> and so freshman year, you know, I had friends who were like, oh, you got you to gotta join the group. And I, it wasn't my music. I wasn't into that sort of stuff. I thought it was a little square, a little, you know, bow ties and, and stuff that I'm not prone to wearing. Right. And uh, so I didn't, but... I started at, at the end of the freshman year. I actually knew a couple of the guys who, one of the guys who joined was a, lived in my dorm and he was actually a really cool guy. And I was like, oh, he joined. Maybe. So they said, you got to do it. It's a lot of fun. First of all, we make all our own money. So we travel all, they travel all over the Northeast playing gigs. They make money. That money goes straight into kegs, keggers, uh, <laughs> food. Parties like it's 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 a it's a great racket, and so sophomore year I joined it, and I never had so much fun in my life as those uh, three years that I was in the dissipated eight at Middlebury. Dissipated the D eight, that's right. Yeah. Uh, we had a blast. It was a really great group of guys, and uh, you know, you go everywhere. You go. We end up like we'd be in Bermuda riding mopeds uh, at four in the morning, where everything's all paid. It's all paid. Oh my God. <laughs> by this group it's kind of stupid and dangerous but um lovely and beautiful and one of the people i met through that uh, a, a few years later is clint beerman one of our great collaborators and friends and uh and as you as you well know yeah so it turned out to be a um gateway to uh a lot of people who have are still important uh to my musical life and, and, and all that. What happens, um, what happens after college, right out of college? One of the guys who was 
it was really the greatest musician in the group during my time. His name is Mike McGuire. And so at the end of college, uh, college, we're looking at each other going, what, what are we going to do? What do we want to do next year? And so we decided to move to New York City together to write songs together. And we had a duo thing, Norton and McGuire. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a really sweet law firm. Yeah, nice Irish law firm. <laughs> uh, so we we did that, um, and unfortunately, we both got immediately uh, hooked on Tetris. Oh. Tetris was like the big game uh, uh, of that year. People were flunking out of uh, MIT with what? Tetris and Dick. This was like a weird moment in history. Jesus. Yeah, uh, a few years before before your time, so you 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 don't remember this, but. We literally lost the entire summer to Tetris. We were living in this little apartment in the uh, Hell's Kitchen in New yeah. York City. And um, we had jobs, you know, we had to get waiting table jobs. And we'd come back every day planning to do some writing and, and rehearsing. And all we would do is like uh, fight over the computer to play Tetris. And it was, it was, it was sad. So at the end of that summer, uh, we had virtually nothing to show for it. I went off to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, uh, which I did a year over there in London as a post, uh, you know, post-college program, which was an amazing experience and mostly theater centric. Um, and then came back and started really doing theater uh, as, as an actor and then starting a theater company called the Blue Light Theater Company off Broadway in New York, uh, which had you know, I, I had a, a lot of uh, friends and people in the business, and there was a generation of people that I knew from my dad's, who I was able to get to sort of support it in a uh, both financial and um, um, mentorship sort of way. And we had a great run where we had a lot of really great people involved, people like Marissa Tomei and uh, Billy Crudup and uh, Francis McDormand and yeah. And Woodward and Paul Newman wow. and people who all worked Jesus. with us and immediately gave us a real credibility, you know. And I ran that. I was a you know artistic director of that for six years, which was a totally great trip. But it wasn't really being an administrator, essentially, which is what that job really is, uh, was not where I wanted to go. So when I got into it, I knew I was like, okay, well, this thing's starting to take off in a direction that, you know, soon I had six or seven employees. I was in an office every day and all day was like, please give us money. We need more money. We're running out of money. We need money. Right. It was a fundraising job. Um, much more than a creative job. Creative is like, you know, 3% of any artistic director's job, as they'll probably tell you. Uh, so eventually I started I put up a wall between my office and the other office. I had a double wall built so I could, so I could play music in there and start recording music. And I recorded my first uh, solo solo album, which became Demogog and the Sun Songs. Yeah, in that I, office while they, they were out there going, "Greg, we need your help. We're running out of money." <laughs> and I'm just sitting there like, "I'm in the middle of a of a take." <laughs> That's really I, kind of how it happened. But there's, I have a thousand, I, I have a thousand questions about everything you just said. One, as someone who did a PG year 
Um, but just as like a normie in Germany, um, what was that year like for you in London? You're fresh out of college, first time being abroad. And was it like attached to the West End? Like, like what totally. was the connection? So, so, and, and you're just like taking classes and, and getting mentors or like, what did, what did that look like? It's a pretty intense uh, school. A lot of the greatest, you know, British actors go through that school. That or RADA is a slightly higher um, reputation. But uh, for instance, a couple of days ago, I was at an opening of a friend's show in, in New York City and uh, the actor Brian Cox was there. Um, who plays, you know, the patriarch of that uh, HBO show right now, um, the name of which... Uh, Secession? Succession. A very, very famous British actor. And so, you know, I said, hey, I was introduced to whatever. I said, you know, I, I, uh, I went to Lambda, because I knew he went to Lambda, and I was at Lambda with his son. No shit. And so immediately, like, he just took me in the corner and it, with a couple of wines, he just regaled me with every story he had from all the greatest, oh my like God. his stars from Donald Sutherland to, you know, whoever uh, that went there back in the day. And, and he taught there for a while uh, later on when my uncle actually went, went there in, uh, in the seventies, I guess it would be. Wow. And, um, is this is this when you would receive care packages from Paul Newman? I would. I did. Yes. I remember I, you I telling came me home, this. Uh, from one one of those, you know, one of my first time I came home and I I saw him at a, a an event, a theater event, and I said to him, uh, "By the way, you know, I can't get Newman's own anything in London," which was my favorite. Uh, sauce and everything sauce and everything at that point <laughs> so, so i go back to london i'm in my little flat with you know four other flatmates <clears throat> we don't have any electricity i know we had electricity we didn't have heat oh and it was one of the things we were calling the landlord the landlord's like these these you know these guys are not even from the country we're not going to give them heat <laughs> we had no fucking heat in this place we're in like parkas gloves or we had a little rain you know the range yeah, oven yeah. that we would light up at night and warm up by it before we got into under our covers to sleep it was fucking cold uh but one of the great warming things was like three cases of newman's own products show up one day on. that he had sent he's that he was that kind of guy i mean you kind of skimmed over a blue light but I'm glad that through that experience, you were able to find the time to record that demo because that's how I was introduced to your music through Rich Price. That was the record that he's like, hey, you should check out my buddy. And I was like, man, this sounds like shit. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you record this in an in a office? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and I was like, wow. Uh, okay. And I, and a lot of those tunes, maybe not a lot, but, but some of those tunes we still play, right? Isn't Janie come from that record? It is. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Well, the full story on that and really what kind of finally got me out of the theater thing and into the music world was, uh, was a combination of things, but I started, you know, 
going to all these kind of benefit events where people are singing and people knew that I sang and so that I would get uh, you know asked to sing at these things occasionally but but um, why were you going to these benefit things uh because that's the world of running theater companies okay the so, 501c3 in New York City you're in a, got you. in a circuit of uh constant opening nights and uh, got you. benefit events and things so I'm at one where Phoebe Snow mm-hmm. uh, great great legendary singer songwriter from the 70s is there this is you know now the 90s but um <clears throat> late 90s somewhere but she's still just this tremendous singer she's she kind of evolved from a folk singer she's a very folk scene uh bleaker street beginnings wow had several like, i think she made one album of the year in 1977 or eight wow. i listened to those albums when i was a kid because they were playing all the time in our house and she was singing and you know brought the house down as she did every time i ever saw her sing and i sang afterwards and she came up to me afterwards she's like you sound really good what are you doing i said well i run this theater company but i i you know i'm really i want to be a i want to be a singer songwriter like you said well play me some of your stuff so i sent her some stuff and she said okay uh i'm gonna i'm gonna produce you I'm gonna, we'll start, we'll get you in the studio. I have some friends, whatever. So pretty short order. I'm in the studio with Jimmy Vivino. You know, Jimmy Vivino was uh, the guitarist for Conan O'Brien. Okay, yeah, 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 sure. All, like all of his years. And he's a really tremendous guitarist. But yeah, he was a friend and a producer. And, you know, he can do a lot of stuff. So basically, he got me in there with like Conan O'Brien's band. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Three of those songs off there, um, we recorded in Sony Studios A. I don't, I don't, don't think it exists anymore. Like a lot of those studios are just gone. Right. Uh, you know, that's was right around the corner from the Hit Factory. All that sort of center of big '80s pop uh, studios. Was it is, near Electric Ladyland? No, that was downtown. Okay. Uh, further, but it was basically that same echelon of, mm-hmm. you know, famous studios where a lot of famous shit was done. Wow. All of which have died in the probably right thereafter, early, early aughts, maybe. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Just ran out, you know, as the digital took over. Well, yeah. Well, that and probably you know, the cost of having a great room where you can record a full band or an orchestra or, you know, a string section. Like, I feel like studios in general are going from, you know, a large room to very small individual rooms. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little cleaner. You can go in and edit digitally, but this is like the heyday of New York City recording studios. I mean, it isn't, this isn't now. this is the end of right. it but right um those were the studios where all that stuff had gone down <clears throat> and they were already starting to feel the pain of you know what digital was doing to the, to their bottom line and, right. and, the, and the music business of course but at any rate so that kind of lit the spark uh if you will i mean no <laughs> pun intended what not to quote myself but <laughs> Um, and I really just started writing 
and dreaming out how I was going to get out from under this, um, this theater company that I built. Yeah. And, uh, to finish that album, I ended up doing a lot of it. Um, just like you say, like it was starting to be where you could record these things at a high level, uh, with your own setup. Right. And I'm still trying to figure out how to do this and being in a studio with a bunch of people, what with stuff that I'm just trying to figure out how to write songs, how to do it was difficult, nerve wracking, expensive, and, you know, whatever, not sustainable. Right. So when the guy I started working with, uh, his name was Roger Butterly, who also was Phoebe's uh, MD at that time, said, you know, I can set you up with a rig and you can do all the vocals you want and figure this yeah. shit out, you know, yeah. on your own time. Yeah, I set that up in the office there and, and I would, you know, I couldn't really record during the day, but at night when people would leave and at 43rd street and it just became a ghost town, yeah. uh, I would look out the window as the pimps and the weirdos were out there just doing their thing in the alley. Just is this, below. Is this Hell's Kitchen? Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and it was at that time that was still late nineties. It was still, yeah. was still sketchy, especially <laughs> after a certain hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, there's a thousand things I need to unpack, um, but I, I can't have this be a, a, a seven-hour interview. Um, no. All right, so blue light. So you transition. You you basically fold on blue light to focus on music, and you start to play regularly in Manhattan. I know that you did a you did a bunch of shows at the Red Lion, and you were kind of part of that scene, kind of full time. I started doing like you know all the little CBGBs galleries all these famous places were still there mercury lounge basically the whole circuit of these places um and you know i'm starting to get to know people i'm i'm working by day at this point now doing like weird catering bartending jobs that would happen at lunchtime and stuff so i could go do gigs at night one of the guys i'm i'm working with it one of these things where we just show up and we do this lunch at the asian society in the upper east side just weird jobs that you find your way into uh one day i'm like he's a bassist how's that going he's, i'm working with somebody new is he good i think so i think so what's his name uh jeff buckley jeff buckley is his name so Bro, this is that shit floored me when you told me that story yeah i mean it's I, still floored me i didn't know to cut two years later till i till i knew who the hell jeff buckley was um but the I, fact that he's like i think he's good and that was mick who was who was yeah. his basis through all those mick grundle parts. yeah yeah i can't tell you how much jeff buckley inspired me influenced me i mean when you told me that story i was like i could i can't believe it. i could i couldn't believe it. i can't believe it still can't believe it uh, yeah. are you lying to me no that's okay, a true story Nick was a very nice, unassuming guy, you know, and he's very soft-spoken. And he's like, yeah, I think he's, I think he's good. <laughs> Jesus, man. But it's funny, too. It's a good, interesting thing that I think a lot of people who are great, it's hard to tell at first until, until there starts to be a convergence of attention, spotlighting what's great about them. Until, until you hear, and it's a true thing about, like, plays too it's always the joke uh, a show is not a hit until 
you know, somebody said it was a hit and then right. suddenly people will go. Right. Um, it's true um, of artists too. I, I didn't hear him at that moment. By the time I heard him, um, and my sister was at NYU there and she used to go to his. No, uh, she used to go to Sine. Yeah. 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 Are you fucking kidding me? She called me first. She was like, you got to see this guy. Like, and he does, he does this version of hallelujah. That just is like, it's like going to church. You have to listen. So, but you know, I'm busy. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Great. Great. Whatever. Yeah, sweet. That's cool. A little center song. I'm interested do it until grace comes out a couple of years later. Oh my God. Um, that reminds me, you know, having talked rapping with Rich and, and Andy Zula obviously comes up. One of Andy's great lines is, I don't know if I hate it or love it. Right. <laughs> you know, you've heard him say that before. Right? Yeah. It's a great line. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's so, the same shit. It's so the same. true. Of, yeah. I mean, anything, anything great. It's, it's hard to say at first, uh, whether it's great or it's shit. I mean, that's not true of any of everything, but, but there are some bands that's sort of ahead of its time. You know what I mean? Right. And it takes a minute. Like I will say that about Radiohead. First time I heard Radiohead was that first record, Pablo honey. I heard creep and I was like, nah, it's not it. And then I heard them do high and dry. Right. And I was like, Oh, okay. So it was like that thing. It was like, is it shit? Is it great? I, I don't know yet. I need so more my time. son, my, you know, Owen is 12. Yeah. My son, Owen is now 12 and he's doing school of rock and he's just way into it. I bet. And I'm determined, crushing it. I mean, just... determined to not have him make the mistakes his dad made by not studying music early. So for years, I just been like, nope, you're, <clears throat> we're sitting down this time of day and you're learning piano every day. Uh, and finally, like years of, it got to years of, yeah. I don't want to do this. Why are you yeah. making me do this? Right. This and, sucks. Fuck this instrument, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm actually like, I'm pretending it's all cool. I'm like, nope, it's just the way it is. But I'm panicking a little bit inside. I'm like, oh man, I'm, do I give this up? Cut to last year, you know, pandemic time. All the camps are closed down, but School of Rock is open. I'm like, oh, there it is. Yeah. So I introduced him to School of Rock, which, God, I wish that existed when I was a kid. Right. And uh, he just, he just, it blew his mind. He's like, wait a minute. Fish I can, water. I can do this. So now he's way into it. And yeah, last fall semester, awesome. he did Radiohead was his concert ah. thing. Which, you know, they asked him to do it just because he's pretty advanced uh, keyboard player for his age. And <clears throat> they needed one. Oh, um, okay. But it's, I was like, this is kind of jumping into a whole other thing. And if you want to, if you want to ask the question of whether Radiohead is good or not, go listen to a bunch of 12 year olds trying to play it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you'll be wondering. <laughs> it's really hard stuff. You know? it's, no, it's just horrible. melodically, everything like changes the changes in the melodies and the, in the lyric. I mean, but what an awesome, um, like it's not, it's not a cathartic moment. It's it's the, it's a moment where you see that change from man, this is a drag to holy shit, this is incredible. When right. you're on an instrument, right? Yeah. And, I, and I had those same feelings when I was learning piano. I was like, this music sucks. <laughs> if I had, if I had like a school of rock at yeah. that age, yeah. I mean, I'd be in a band with the Sweet Remains right now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wait a minute. Wait, a minute. Wait, hold on. 
Aren't you? Didn't you fire me? <laughs> <They're> trying. <laughs> Who doesn't love Santan Brewing Company? If you don't love Santan Brewing Company, I want you to stop what you're doing, go to your local store, and just pick up a little sixer of moon juice. That's their incredibly delicious craft beer. But they also have award-winning spirits. Let's not forget those. I want to tell you about the new event space called Santan Gardens. Come on. This is this is going to be the joint. 495 East Warner Road, right in Chandler, Arizona. It's adjacent to their brewery and distillery. So you know all the juice is going to be fresh, y'all. I want to tell you about an event coming up. Oh, my. Friday, May 13th. Tom Petty's Wildflowers Tribute. I'm in that band. Mark your calendar. Get tickets. Only 18 bones. General admission. Or, let's be honest, you're a baller. VIP. $45. You got that. Check out santanbrewing.com forward slash events. Join us May 13th. You're going to cut this down to like a tight 15, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Tell me um, how you connected with our colleague, Rich Price. I'm dying to hear your side of the story on how we all met. Well, so I'm doing the playing all these places like CBGB's gallery and all these places, just as they're all dying out <laughs> and disappearing. And uh, one of the guys that I end up sort of seeing a lot and playing with a lot is a guy named Gavin DeGraw, who, who subsequently signed a, a record deal with uh, Jack J records and, and uh, Clive Davis. Um, but during this time, you know, we become buddies and we play a couple of off the beaten path places that you actually can make some money. And one of them that he tips me off to is red lion, which is just a quintessential old bleaker street. Yeah. Irish bar, you know, open till f- music all night until four in the morning. Oh my God. So I end up getting a gig there. Um, on so, the- so hold on, but hold on. You're just bumming around Greenwich Village with Gavin DeGraw? I mean, not like literally, we're not just walking down the street. No, uh, but how did you get connected to him? Because, I mean, you know, he's like a major cat, you know. He's well, a, you know, he's a, trem- he's a tremendously talented guy. And so I, I saw him. Um, he had a manager at the time who also took an interest in me and had a club called Wilson's, which was up on 79th and Amsterdam it no longer exists, but one day at a open mic or something, I got up and did something there and she came up to me afterwards and said, what are you doing? I want you to play here every week. And I had this other guy who just started playing here. He was really talented. You got to meet him and you can play before him or whatever. So that was Gavin. And we kind of became friends and we did random things together. We did you know, we end up doing benefits together, other things. There was another group. There was a Broadway-centric record label that a good friend of mine, Kurt Deutsch, ran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, called Shikaboom Records. And they kind of pulled us into a bunch of their events and things that they were producing and released our, our music and such. But anyway, 
it was he started doing a thing at Red Lion and you know introduced me there or I don't remember exactly how but I ended up playing I opened for him for a while and then took over his Monday nights when he got signed mm-hmm. and, and took off from wow. there um and his longtime bassist at that point uh, Alvin Moody uh was a good friend we we shared a bassist in, in Alvin who was this, a, a great guy and a super bassist and very experienced and he was also in a way a mentor to to me as he was to gavin but um so i played there and that's the time i met rich he uh i want to say he was just moved to new york and he had been he'd been out and around a little bit like he you know he had been at middlebury with uh, his roommate at the time was one of the members of Dispatch. And so he kind of went immediately into their sphere and going around the music business. And he ended up in New York and he's now a, a singer songwriter and a Middlebury guy. So I'm introduced to him. Uh, I think I had the theater company at that point. We had a, a, a softball team. He came and played on the softball team one day, sat in for somebody <clears throat> and uh, it was a big game. And, and he ended up getting thrown out on second base and, and ending the game <laughs> and as he That's will awesome as he will tell everybody it was a very uh embarrassing moment because uh, <laughs> he was really proud of himself for hitting a double and then, yeah. and then unfortunately got thrown out at second and ended the game and everybody, was, everybody was angry at him <laughs> But that's sort of how we first met and i started going to his gigs he started coming to my gigs and I remember him sitting in the um, red line at some of the gigs. And eventually I was like, hey, you want to come up and, and do a song uh, in the next set with me or whatever? And that's how we started collaborating. And then one day he he called me and said, you know, I got to do some touring. Uh, you know how the economics of this work and whatever. How about we team up and, and um, we'll do some of these together. I've got this booking agent who's put some of the dates together. So... So we started doing that, and he had that his famous uh, old '70s van, uh, white chocolate. At that chocolate. point, it already had a lot of stories to tell. But uh, before Rich ever picked him up, <laughs> and um, anyway, that that's where we started playing together, and 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 put a year on that for mm-hmm. me. I'm going to say 2003 ish. Okay. Um, okay. That we started actually touring together and doing mm-hmm. stuff together. Mm-hmm. And so so is this this is um is this after the foundation or before or before the foundation? Okay, before. before. So he, before he got signed. Yeah, he's just uh, okay. he had already had some kind of demo deal with uh the RCA people, you know, that came out of the the dispatch era um but that didn't quite pan out and so now he's back in new york and he's writing songs and he's doing whatever and we start collaborating and and, uh and then um you know we're doing two-part harmonies and both of us are just constantly ah that needs that third part that needs that third part and so we had, you know, an on and off again collaboration. I would say, like, 
he's going off to different parts of his life and the world and whatever, and I'm doing various things. And, and every once in a while we're together and we're doing some stuff and cut to, you know, he moves to Los Angeles. Eventually I'm like, Oh, well, it was fun. Gets fun while it lasted, but this is the, probably the end of that run. But he goes out there to actually to do the Geffen record. He gets signed um, to Geffen and, you know, we're both really excited for him and that because uh, I've written some of those songs with him that are on that record. And we're both very uh, hopeful that, you know, this is a, a step in, 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 a, in a great direction. And of course, like um, the running theme here is a dissolution of the, of the record business in, in general. Right. And that whole, that whole label is sort of falling apart at that point. And, and, um, he gets uh, eventually dropped after he's already, you know, got the foundation and his touring and everything. Right. And out of the ashes of that, Brian, this is where you come in. He says, you know what? I want you to, he- I-, I heard this guy, I heard this artist that um, I think you dig. And I-, I think he might be, I'm-, I'm pretty sure he said this. I could be wrong. Did he say, did you, you, you asked him this story. Is this what he said? No, I'm no, sure. no. I'm pretty sure he said to me, I think I may have found that third harmony we've been looking for. Check this guy out. And the first thing he played me was, uh, it was Ghosts, was it? No, no, Better no, Ways no. to Spend the Day. It was definitely, yeah, it was Better Ways to Spend the Day, which immediately uh, is, 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 is a very sexy song and it's a really a great song. song. And, you know, it was one of those things where you listen to it as a singer-songwriter, you're immediately a little bit jealous. You're like, what? <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> no, I actually, I was, I mean, like, okay, all right, well, I'll meet him. Yeah. Um, and he said, well, he and I have set up a thing where we're going to do a duo tour together. We're going to travel from L.A. He's in L.A. I'm in New York at the, this point. And you're in Phoenix, but you've gone out to LA, right? Yeah. Meet up with him and do this. And uh, you guys travel all the way across, all the way across the country. All the way across right? the country. And he, and he he's checking, checks in with me at a certain point and says, we're going to be in Rhode Island. Why don't you come up there and and meet us and we can we can jam or whatever we have a we have a you know kind of like it's it wasn't like an anchor gig you know there was some decent bread it was at uh, salve regina in rhode island and i remember <laughs> decent bread i don't remember anything about bread well bro it was a loss the whole thing was a loss but it, that was an anchor date you know the okay. only reason why we're at fucking salve regina in rhode island is because it was some bread um but I just want, I just want to share with the listeners, you know, we, I get, I move, I, I, I don't move out. I fly out to, I think it was Sacramento and we get in the car and we get in the car. It's going to be the famous in and out story. No, no, no. This is exactly <laughs> like, we had okay. done like Rich and I had done some things before and it was like, you know, we would do some duo stuff out in Los Angeles. That was the in and out story. This is when the tour is starting and he picks me up at the airport. I think in Sacramento, there's a, there's a case of cuties, the, the little Tangelo, whatever, tangerine little niblets, and then a case (laughs) of water. And we go do a show in Lake Tahoe and Rich gets very ill. Yeah. And, as a result, it was going to be like a, like a, you do one, I do one, you know, and then 
because I was, t- I will tell you this because he was ill and he couldn't sing and barely play guitar. He had to bag a couple of the, of the dates early on because he was fucking purple. Um, and I sent him to the back of the van and I had to swab the deck. I, I was, that's where you guys coined this phrase. Yes, swab, swab the deck. The deck. You still stick with, which yeah. by the way, for the listener, that's when you grab some, uh, ant, you know, antibiotic. Everybody knows about that now, but back then this was groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> and you get a Clorox thing and you yes, wipe and you everything every, down. Dashes down the the handle the handlebars, no, the uh, steering wheel, everything. Because if I got sick, then the tour is over. And I was like, I'm not letting this tour die here. Hmm. So I sent him to the back. He's in cold sweats under a blanket. I'm throwing him cuties and water. And I'm trying to keep this fucking ship right, you know? Literally. Yeah. And as a result, I learn all of his songs. I not only learn the the harmony when we were actually playing together, I now learn the melody. So by the time we get to the East Coast, he has recovered. He says, you know, we have this anchor date at Salve Regina. And Q us all meeting and it literally was in a in a relatively shady hotel <laughs> although we had two rooms that was that must have been part of the contract typically rich and i were splitting a room but we had two rooms and i remember we finally get there i'm exhausted i literally have been driving across the country rich has been you were fried you were totally fried i was totally fried and i say listen he says, we're going to meet my friend Greg. I'm like, great. I have to take a nap immediately. I'm going to play a show tonight. So I go in the next room. I pass out. You guys are hanging. I come in, and there you are in your glorious, in your self. glorious self. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but that's, that's the, and then I remember playing the show. I remember what it looked like. I remember the stage. I remember the sound. And and no shit. I don't remember the show. I have almost no recollection of the show. But what I do remember is that very first moment of playing together. Yeah. And uh, which. Well, it's like, it's like, what songs are we going to fuck at? Like, right. well, this, I don't know can... you. You know, you know his stuff. I know his stuff. But now, as, as harmony singers, it's like, well, I've been singing the third this whole time. And you're like, well, I've been singing the fifth. All right, so maybe we do the fifth, a fifth underneath, or you know, like so. It was a bit of negotiating. Yeah, it actually, it, it, if you look at a few of those first songs we ever um, arranged together, they are oddities because I'm singing bass on a couple of them, only because that's all that was left to do. Um, but I do remember you guys were just fried out from the road, uh, and and. I was, you know, come in with a lot of energy. <laughs> I'm like, hey, all right, this will be fun. Let's check it out. And I just remember, but I do, I do think honestly, and we talk about this quite a bit. Um, there was something uh, right from the beginning where there was a meeting of both minds, personalities, and and music that is super rare. Yeah, uh, and it's. This is now 2007, so this is the reason why in 2022 we're still a band and still doing this, I think, is that um, 
that super stroke of good luck that you can can meet two other guys right you're able to collaborate with and get along with so right away we started having laughs we started having fun we started enjoying the music and going wow all right this is and it was that thing that rich and i had been looking for we're like three-part harmony two parts good three parts a lot more fun a lot more interesting well Um, and i and i think that you i think that you that you kind of nailed it on the head in, in the sense that it's like do i trust these motherfuckers do like do we have fun do i trust them do we all share the same goal for the outcome and i think we came we had enough common uh background and love for for similar music enough you know uh-huh. to to make music together and to trust that the music that we're bringing and and what those two other people will bring will elevate it you know right right and i still think i mean <clears throat> we've talked about this a lot because it became the basis of of this screenplay that i ended up writing that became the became the, the movie this is, the independence this is the but, next question homie come on no but i mean uh what happened there is rare and interesting and i think our whole story and trajectory is unusual all of it is unusual the ways and how and why we're still here being able to do this the good fortune we have to be able to do this is unusual even in the even in the um in the world of of bands and how they tend to work function stay together make money to be able to function where all of that we're on the absolute uh extreme spectrum of oh that's how that works oh i mean i think not many bands are truly democracies either i mean very few if you look back at the ones that have lasted almost all of them um there was really there was really somebody who was the leader and the other people had to sort of play into that. So that's an interesting aspect is the constant negotiating democratic process by which we have to make all decisions. And, and and you look at, you know, you look at the great uh, trios and duos of the past 50 years they didn't last because no, there were because a headed monster or a two-headed monster. Right. And someone's not getting, as you say, as we say in the movie, like someone's not getting enough, someone's getting too much. Right. Um, <laughs> tell me, um, tell me about the independence. Tell me about the inspiration for that. Tell me the process because I got to tell you as someone who has never acted as, you know, Jesus, man. For real. That happen at I this mean, point? come on. You know what, man? I'm, I think <laughs> I'm thinking like you're taking this shit seriously and you're still getting emails. <laughs> I turned that off hours ago. I mean, this is the longest interview in the history of podcast. <laughs> My computer was like, fuck no, this has got to be over by now. <laughs> you set a timer. Says, Tell me when this shit is over. Jesus. <laughs> I put it on auto. It's like <laughs> podcast length. It's got to be done. <laughs> Start over with that question. What was it? Where where did the where was the seed germinated to to write a screenplay for a feature film? And why 
the fuck did you cast Rich and I to do it? Well, I think I, I think I just explained what the seed was, which was this relationship that I have with you two guys, like with two other grown men where we still in many ways, uh, cohabitate uh, in, in various weird locations, places, and ways is definitely the most unusual, interesting relationship that I have with two other grown men in the world. So it's a weird, odd world, you know, to be in a band together. And I was sort of just picking at that string all the time as I am uh, always. And it eventually led to uh, I can't remember why I first started sitting down to write it, but it was actually quite a long time ago. I wrote a short film script. It was really much more, um, really even sillier and uh, more punchline comedy kind of idea. Uh, and eventually I pulled that out of the desk one day. I was like, you know, I wanted, if I'm wanting to make a, a full length feature and this actually really could be a full-length feature it's a world i know it's a world that could bring some real production value to without you know without having to actually raise millions of dollars to do it you know we own the music it's our lives it's our world we could do this but there was a stage where i was thinking maybe though it's actors that do this Mm real actors and you know i write it for that kind of a thing but when i was writing it it just it it always stayed really personal the the sense of humor of it the world of it was something that was so particular to not only our music but to us Mm -hmm. and to the dynamic of what we all find funny together i've heard you know, not to this is going to sound shitty to compare myself to wes anderson and i'm not compa- comparing myself to wes anderson when i say this but i i heard an interview with him where somebody was you know being critical and talking about how many people actually hate wes anderson i'm one who actually loves wes anderson yeah me too but he said well you know i, I don't do it to we just do like Owen and i just started writing stuff that we thought was funny like and when people ask him about a certain moment like, what was that about? He said, well, we just thought that was funny. That's right. our sense of humor that struck us as funny. And in a way, I knew a lot of the film was that way. Like, you guys would understand the sense of humor of it um, in a way that I don't. I wasn't confident we could recreate with people who weren't us and hadn't lived through this uh, weird bullshit uh, <laughs> stuff that we've done, you know? Well, it, 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 you know, I mean, we could have a whole pod, we should have a whole podcast about the making of that film and the process of it and just the nuts and bolts of it. Um, that experience for you, would you do it again? Like, what were the bits that you loved about it? What were the bits that you would rather not do again? I would totally do it again. Uh, I'm scheming for how to do it again. I have a couple of uh, scripts that are in various stages of preparedness for doing it again. But um, that's am an awfully, I, loaded, awfully loaded question. I just want to make sure that we have another three hours for this answer. 
<laughs> well, yeah, no, I well, get no, it. but seriously, the yeah. the um, I felt like I still feel like it was the perfect uh, expression of my completely weird and chaotic um, the creative career and life. You know, the producing aspect of it is was riding a bike for me because I've I spent years producing theater and producing a theater company and it's the very similar muscles and it's about getting people who know the different jobs and trying to to hire people who hopefully have their shit together and we got very lucky there with a number of people yeah uh, first and foremost being derocha mate who was our line producer and really awesome really 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 helped to make everything come together but then it's just it's just you know as you know it's years of um being stupidly stubborn about getting it done and trying to get it done to the level of the vision that you had for it i have and a that question was really, that was really that was really a probably the largest single project that i've ever done in my life that way i would imagine i mean that thing was it took you know, multiple weeks in multiple locations. I mean, just the logistics and I mean, the shoot of it was really just like, that was in a way that was the easiest part of it from oh, no my shit. point of view. Yeah. yeah. Because then we had the team, we had the raw materials and it was just about trying to capture the alchemy, you know, on, on tape. Right. Um, and that was fun. I mean, how much fun did we have during the shoot? It was a ton of fun. A ton of I mean, fun. <clears throat> I mean, after after the day ended, I was in my room, you know, panicking all night with the next day's shoot, trying to make sure I was prepared with the shot list, you know, editing the the the, the scenes and dealing with the fact that it's raining, and so now we have right. to change the shoot to, and all that stuff. But um, and so. Uh, yeah, I had, I had virtually no sleep. And the last thing I was ever thinking about was my lines and my part. So whenever it came to like the scene, I'm like, oh shit, I'm in this scene. <laughs> yeah. uh, luckily I'd written the words, so they came pretty easily, but I didn't study them. <laughs> well, well, I mean, just c congratulations on accomplishing such a high level uh artistic thing i mean it, you know i i you know, as i say we we've made records before and and that has its intense moments and i mean shit the first record we cut in in rich's living room and you were sleeping over here and i was sleeping over here and you know so that's that's one level you know but this it's just more involved and so many moving parts and you pulled it off, man, and that's hats off, man. And 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 as someone who was in the project, granted, I blacked out the whole time. I don't remember what what happened, but it looks incredible, and it's and it's it's legit. Like it's a legit fucking feature film. Like that's well, that's very nice. I I appreciate that, but um, I'm super. I'm I'm really super proud of it. I think that. Good. You should. Uh, I feel. Like. I think that it captured. I think we made the film that I was hoping we'd make. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And that was obviously always the peril of doing this. Is like you're going to do this. It's going to take you five years plus. 
uh, to wrangle it, get it together, raise the money, do the stuff, get everybody involved, edit it, get it marked, you know, find a distribu- distributor and distribution outlet. Right. And it's not going to be the film that you wanted to make. It become everything becomes its own thing, and it's different maybe than I envisioned this scene or that thing. But the heart of that film was exactly what I wanted to capture, which is what I think uh, I love about uh, making music with you guys, yeah, and being in this collaboration. Um, and you know, it, it's it it turns out to be a, a kind of a a sweet film and it's funny that's what i wanted it to be yeah. funny and, and it captures the sense of humor i think that we all have which is great but um i think it's a hopefully a, a universal tale that at the end of the day is is a, is kind of a, a feel-good thing and, and and makes people feel good about um about being creative and trying in the face of impossible odds and you know we are we're a small band struggling to make it a possible life in this for ourselves. Um, but I think the accomplishment of making that film about it in a way, hopefully um, distills what we can all be proud of and happy that we've managed to just scratch a life together to be able to do this rather than some other shit like digging ditches and uh right you know what i mean yeah especially in the face of just a completely dissolving um business on both sides you know i i I moved from the from the music business into the movie business just at the moment that that was completely tanking and then a pandemic hit and the the ability to make money back on any of the stuff we're doing is such a crapshoot. Yeah. Um, but that's what the film is about. It's just, a, and it's about that. And then it also is that. So it's a little right. meta. It's like, like <laughs> how the fuck do you make a life doing this sort of thing and, and pay for it? I'm here to tell you about Rare Disease Renegades. Rare Disease Renegades is a nonprofit, it's a 501c3, founded by my friends Billy and Michelle. It's a charity created to accelerate science. In 2020, Billy and Michelle's son, Caffrey, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a rare disease caused by a genetic mutation that renders muscles unable to recover from activity. It starts with the legs, then all limbs, and ultimately impacts the lungs and heart. There's no cure for this life-limiting disease. Caffrey is going to be 12 this May. And we need science to move a bit faster for him. I hope that you take a moment to check out rarediseaserenegades.org and find a way to support this worthy cause. Did you approach making the movie the same way that you would say make a record? Are there similarities to the approach? Totally. There's a lot of similarities through all of it not least of which is the distribution end that I'm, I was just sort of, uh, uh, but, alluding, I, but I mean more like, but I also mean, but on the creative side, yeah, there, there is what I enjoyed about it. That sometimes frustrating about songwriting is the 
confines of it. Now, I I guess we could all decide we want to write, you know, a 15, 20 minute, half hour song if we wanted to. But for the most part, we sit down and go, if we want anybody to enjoy this and listen to it, it better be three and a half minutes, give or take. Right. And so that gets occasionally, I mean, I don't know if you ever feel this frustration, but sometimes I'm like, oh, there's so much more I want to put into this. There's so much, but, you know, I got to find a way to distill it to this. And so that was very liberating when I first started writing uh, scripts and writing this script too, where it's, you can continue that, just keep continuing. And every scene mm-hmm. becomes sort of its own song, but they're all, you know, they're all together. And in, in the end, it's, it's this double album or whatever. Right. I mean, the whole, the whole script. Right. Right. Um, check out the independence you can find it. Where do you want people to listen or listen? Where do you want people to watch it? I preferably they can do both. <laughs> Turn it I on. Prefer it if they watch and listen. Uh, <laughs> um, Vimeo is definitely where, you know, we get the best uh, cut out of that and is sort of the home base for it. Vimeo.com. But not everybody knows that, even though it's probably on your smart TV or your Apple TV already. Yeah. But, um, you know, Apple. I like Apple. It's a good company. They yeah. they pay decently. Amazon, you can get it there too. But if you do, uh, they take a stupid chunk and um, we'll, do another, we'll do another episode <laughs> where we can talk about well, Amazon's responsibility to the creative world that they haven't picked up. <laughs> um, so everyone check out The Independence. It just so happens that The Sweet Remains are in it. It's written by Greg. It was a, It was really an awesome experience to be a part of. Um, I had so much fun. It was traumatizing. It was exhilarating. It was fun as fuck. And why traumatizing out of curiosity? Um, well, because I'm a fish out of water on this shit, you know, like I'd never you acted. Took to you took to it like a fly to shit. That's what I'm going <laughs> to <laughs> Well, I would say I, <laughs> like a leech to a nutsack. <laughs> <laughs> like okay on, i think this, sec- this part of the right. podcast is over <laughs> you edit that? Okay. <laughs> no i'm gonna keep that shit <laughs> i loved it um so i i reached out to a couple people that i was going to be interviewing you um the authorities i'm sorry the authorities are they here yeah. now? I called the police. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! No, I um, I hit our our uh, our friend and colleague Rich Price. I said, uh, Greg is going to be on the podcast this evening. Any questions that that are uh, a hole in your trousers, so to speak? And this is what he says: Would you rather be? And this is like classic rich price agent. I can already you, tell it's already you know classic. Say, yeah. price. Would you rather Would be? you rather be Stevie Wonder or Paul McCartney? Holy shit though. Yeah. That's I, a good question. I read that and I was like, God knows it. That's a really good question. Wow. Well, as you know, like my favorite all time is Stevie, Stevie. Wonder. Yeah. And and you met Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Would you just share that 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 moment? By the way, I've also met Paul McCartney. Oh, fuck you. And this Jesus, is a good man. 
this is kind of a, a good instance in which that that actually matters but so you know the the old phrase be careful meeting your heroes because they will disappoint you yeah and i just knew it i knew it my whole life i was like if i ever meet stevie wonder like he's not going to disappoint me he's oh he's the guy the guy is is he is he is he, love he is what he sings he is love yeah, yeah. sure enough i get to meet him and it's it, you know there's a lot of people around it's a whole thing it's a it's a sort of backstage deal and and um and i say hey i i just want you to know that you know i, I probably went into music because of you and there's people around and he's stevie wonder and he's had this his whole life everybody says yeah. that to him. so many artists yeah. just look up to him like he's a god but he he goes oh man that's that's a really nice thing to say and he grabs me in a bear hug and he hugs me jesus yeah and it just was it was awesome i was like okay I, okay i can die now okay that's good i can, I can die yeah. now thank you thank you Steve. um and uh and i met uh, paul mccartney once in a very similar situation and uh, and and he was like didn't look me in the eye and was like and, and took off i mean being paul mccartney in any public situation i i give anybody i didn't i don't expect anything from anybody so it was unexpected that right. that, that stevie gave me that much uh, love and attention but uh, but this might go on your grave zone like peace out y'all i was hugged by stevie right that's isn't that i don't know i think my wife right? would be disappointed by that <laughs> um but no well, but that's a really good question and i oof, but i think if i had the if the question is i mean obviously i don't think i'd want to be blind for my whole life but if the question is which music would i rather create mm. believe it or not it's a shorter period of time it's a smaller it's mm -hmm. arguably smaller right no of legacy course. of music uh, i would yeah. probably those songs that stevie created just touch are so damn soulful and and touch me they were all the songs from 68 or 9 to 75 6. he's early 80s uh he kind of lost you it's kind of it's kind of lost me and it, maybe it lost him but that's all right because right. what he created during that period of time is holy moly crazy well speaking of your wife um, I also texted her <laughs> and I told her that I was going to chat with you on a podcast. And she says, Oh, did you say, ask him what time the podcast will be over? And he's going to actually no, <laughs> take, care, I, I, take care of the dishes. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was, I was going to make the joke that she was going to say, um, Craig, uh, when are you going to go get the Thai food for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, said, I, I, I texted Kelly. I said, I'm having Greg on the podcast and I just, you know, I throw out to a couple people uh, some questions and she says, Oh, this is fun. She says, for me, ask him if he had one day to do whatever he wanted without the wife and kids, what would it be now? Hold on. Mm. I don't understand if this means you, like you never had a wife and never had kids or if you just had a, a free day, let's I just think it means a free day. And let's, and let's just say you had a free day. And she's trying to come up with something for my birthday. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do if you just if if Kelly and the kids were gone, and you had a free day, and you and you had no responsibilities? 
What would that's that fairly do? easy, actually, um, because if I'm doing anything other than like a a, a work related writing creative day, I'd rather do it with my family and kids. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if it's gonna be without them, and I had a whole day, then this would be, by the way, pretty damn nice these days when it's like constant uh, interruption in in ridiculous in a uh, beautiful familiar way oh it's lovely i mean i wouldn't trade for the world but the the constant screaming dogs barking (laughs) what dad the the door is broken or whatever it is um i have a big bandit on my finger today because the door was broken today and then of course (laughs) now i can't i can't do a bar chord because my uh i have a blister on this finger anyway I would definitely like having a whole day alone with the, the piano and whatever would would kind of be fun. That's it. That's fucking it. What do you mean? Just a day at the piano? Now listen, this is your life every day, so you don't understand. I don't But understand. You had a whole day to just sort of like I'm gonna just mellow with this. I mean, I probably, I frankly, I, I get a couple of gummies or whatever, and I <laughs> I'd probably end up dancing. Kind of, and, <laughs> <laughs> You get some pad thai, it's a pad thai I, chickens. A yoga the, mat, the, I lay yeah. it out over the top. Uh, <laughs> Take off all my clothes. <laughs> Bust out the mayonnaise. No, I get it, man. Owen wants to know what your credit card number is. <laughs> That's my son. Yeah, good, good one. <laughs> And um, Charlotte uh, wants to know if you had to pick any other kind of dog besides bradley what kind of dog would it be wait a minute did you actually really get these questions from yes my kid? i did well, I, t- i texted kelly she say this <laughs> that's definitely a charlotte question though all she thinks about is dogs if i had to have a dog of a different breed what would it be <laughs> yeah what's your second favorite breed toy a toy dog a not living one it doesn't need to be walked doesn't need to go uh, to the stuffed. bathroom It's a, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, uh, it's a, not a, a not self, a, uh, a self caring, feeding, walking, whatever dog that I do. <laughs> um, well, Greg, um, I got to tell you, man, um, I'm proud to be in a band with you. Uh, I, I love collaborating with you. Um, Touring is always we've had some fun. Good, good adventures, we've, eh? We've we've we've. If it all ended time, tonight, and it probably just did, but it, <laughs> with this podcast, we probably <laughs> killed it. It will, uh, it will definitely end in tears yeah. eventually. But no, man, I gotta say, um, it's been a, it's been an honor to share the stage with you and to make music with you and to to you know like we're in the trenches yeah. together and and that's a bond that that it's not you, you know you don't get to have those moments with other people um that you love and um i can't wait for the next record i can't wait to get um the sweet remains to phoenix again thank you know in june um and go on the road a little bit we've we haven't had the opportunity to to go on tour and i'm rough, rough i'm very much years. looking yeah, forward to for that. that i agree and as i've said yeah. to you before I, i i had a revelation around the time that i wrote that movie that 
at the end of my life, you know, when you think about what I want to be thinking about on my deathbed, I'm sure on my deathbed, one of the things I'll be like, oh, I'll think of just some of the funniest, stupidest things that ever happened to us on tour or, you know, and I'll yeah. be like, those guys, man, where are they at? I hope, you know, that's, that's assuming that I die first, but. <laughs> Which I hope, well, not which I hope is the case, because I don't want to go to one of your funerals. That'll suck. <laughs> Wouldn't that suck? Like, oh man, yeah. I don't want to do that. You guys come to mind though, right? Well, it depends on the. <laughs> if you don't have a gig, <laughs> if I don't have a gig, yeah. oh yeah, I'll definitely look into it. You know, uh, love you, man, right. and look forward to to see you in in June. And excited to get the band back together. And um, this was fun. Too yeah. fun. All right, buddy. Well, give give my love to the family and and uh, and please uh, give Kelly a hug for me. And um, and we'll wrap soon for sure. We got we got shit coming up, homie. Yes, we do. Finally. All right. All right, brother. Yeah, brother. Have a good night. Ciao. You too. Some story goes.